And we're live. Welcome to Seize Your Mind, the podcast about soccer, mental toughness, and life. Today's guest is Scotty Parkinson. How are you, Scotty? Wonderful, mate. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. How are you? Good, good. So for those of you who don't know Scotty, he is now the coach, at the assistant coach for the Chicago Red Stars. He started his career in the U.S. at Chickasha, um, USAO. He also coached uh, Chickasha, I can't say that word, Chickasha High School. (laughs) There you go, nailed it. Uh, He uh, also helped coach Wesleyan uh, College. Uh, He was the assistant coach for Roger State University for two seasons and then became the head coach of the women's team. Um, Then went to Salt Lake, the to uh, the Utah Royals FC, and is now with the Chicago Red Stars. So, very honored honored to have you t- here today, and uh, looking forward to to our little chat. Me so, too. first thing I want to ask you is, back when you were young, how did you first get into soccer? I know you're from Liverpool, England. Everyone there plays. Everyone and their dog plays. Yeah. Um, tell me about what that was like for you and how'd you fall in love with the game? Uh, so I think I was actually like a late bloomer in terms of I actually started playing at like seven or eight, um, which for England, you're kicking a ball when you're two, three, playing in small little games when you're three and four, uh, kind of organised games. Um, so I was a bit of a late bloomer to it. Uh, I don't think my mum and dad were particularly big into sports. Um they both followed uh, Premier League and, and Liverpool and Everton, but they weren't that big into it. So I, I started about seven or eight uh, with my uncle, who used to do kind of summer camps. Uh, and I used to go out and stay with him. And, and he kind of got me starting playing and, and started this whirlwind of a life that I've had in, in the game. That's awesome. Um, so did you play in, in high school? Was that like, did you start playing club? Yeah, so I played club, and in England it's a little bit different. So there is no like club coaches are just whoever's mum and dad best suits to be the coach is the coach. Um, you don't pay any kind of monthly dues, weekly dues, anything like that. The only thing that you would split would be if you rented an indoor facility, everyone would pay, you know, a buck or two. Uh, or if you had a referee on the weekend, everyone would pay you know, a buck or two, and that would pay the referee's fee. So it was very, almost, they call it rec uh, here, but um, that's kind of the way it was set up. So played for a local team. Everyone back home kind of just plays for the team that's closest to your house. So if you live in a Wasso, you play for any OFC. Like, you don't go play for TSC. You don't play for Blitz. You don't play for Energy. That's the club you play for because it's the closest to your house. That's kind of how it works back home. Uh, and you just play with your friends, um, you know, there isn't really a first team or a second team. There may be two teams in the same age group, but they're just two groups of friends. Um, so that's kind of how it all started. Um, I got picked to play for Everton, um, the Premier League team. They're kind of youth set up uh, as a kid. But even when oh, you play yeah. for Everton, I was first time was probably about 11. Um, and it's pretty legit. You wear the Everton kit, you wear everything about it. It's completely free. You don't pay for anything. Um, and um, But what the one thing that is different back home than it is here, here if you play for FC Dallas, FC Dallas don't want you playing for your high school. They don't want you playing with your friends. You just play for FC Dallas. In, in England, you, 
you, you play for everyone. So you play for Everton Saturday and maybe you train on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night with Everton. Then after training, if my kind of club team played, I'd go train with my club team and I would play for my club team on a Saturday morning, play for Everton Saturday evening or vice versa or play on a Sunday. So back home, you never really lose the playing with your friends, playing with your club team, no matter what. Um, so I think that's definitely one of the big differences of, of the US to back home. Back home, it feels a little bit more uh, like community and friends rather here. It's kind of perceived to be a little bit more elite and making that first team and things like that. Gotcha. Do you think that's something United States can try to like implement some aspects of that that would benefit the US development? I just think it's a cultural thing here. Like the US is just such a such a country on winning. We want to be winners. We want to win. We want to, you know, compete. Um, and when you've got that mindset of winning, then your teams get built to win. Like that's how they're built. You get the best players so that them players have the best chance to win. Um, so I think, you know, I think it's a little bit different. Now, don't get me wrong, in England, people want to win too. But the way the, the youth sports are looked at back home is, um, you know, play the best you can possibly play with your local team. And that's enough. Whereas I think in the States, it's a little bit more, you know, win and lose driven. Um, and I'm not sure that's ever going to change. Interesting. Interesting. So... College life and and did you? I know you're a robotics engineer. Were a robotics engineer. Um, mm -hmm. You're an engineer for uh, Range Rover and Jaguar. Yeah. So. Yeah. So uh, basically, probably at about sixteen, um, finishing high school, and there was no, you know, there was no contracts for soccer for me. Um, so it was a matter of just kind of playing semi-professionally to keep playing. Uh, and I I, uh, I got an apprenticeship with Jaguar and Land Rover cars. So they would put me in the factory with the maintenance engineers Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then Friday, I would go to college and university for 12 hours. And I did that for five years. After five years, so when you get to 21, you become a fully-fledged engineer. Um, you get the big salary, you get the big jobs. I went into robot programming. That was the field that the company felt that I was best skilled at. Uh, and I continued playing semi-professionally on the side, which is a great level. For me, it's a very similar level to maybe USL. Maybe USL's improved a little bit over the past five years, but probably early USL is a similar level to maybe the semi-professionally back home. Um, and, then, um, and then I ended up giving it all up and moving to Chickasha, Oklahoma to be a college soccer player. How did you re get recruited to Chickasha, Oklahoma? So... Um, when I was playing in England, we have a team that's kind of like the ODP team. It's like the select team for your area. Um, and that would be the really probably one of the elite teams that you'd want to try and get on. Uh, and they take a team every year to the Dallas Cup to play in an international tournament in, in Dallas every year. And they've done it for 25, 26 years. Um, so I went out there and played on that. So I got to see the American lifestyle, the American facilities, the amount of money that people put into sports in America. is just like nothing I've ever seen before. Um, and then the lifestyle of the coaches, like you can make a living coaching 
kids here. Whereas, as I said before, in England, when you coach a kid's team, you're just the best dad or mum on the team. You don't get paid for it. It's completely free. So a lot of my friends from the Dallas Cup took scholarship offers and came came out to America. Um, Well, I was obviously still an engineer, so I wanted to finish my, kind of finish that up and get going. Um, So probably, I think I was about 24, 23, 24. I came out on vacation to visit some of the players that got scholarships at that time. And there's quite, quite a lot of people from my, from Liverpool who, who came to the Oklahoma city kind of North Texas area. uh, I think because the Dallas Cubs being so close to them areas. And when I seen the lifestyle and seeing what the way people trained every day to see how professional college sports was. It was like, this is the dream. This is what I've always wanted to do full-time every day, be an athlete and compete on a team and be coached by proper coaches. Um, and then I also saw the lifestyle that the coaches had. Um, you know, they had nice cars, nice houses. And I'm like, these guys look like they're making more money in coaching sports out here than some of the lower league teams in England. Like I just couldn't wrap my head around it. So, so when I went out and visited anyway, a lot of me, I told my friends like, this is, I would do this in a I would drop everything. So my friends kind of spoke to the coaches, vouched for me and said, this guy's, you know, a pretty good player. He would help us. He'd be one of our best players. So I went home with, um, with two scholarship offers from Oklahoma city university and science and arts of Oklahoma. Uh, and probably my best friend was at Science and Arts of Oklahoma. So I ended up accepting that offer, put my house up for sale, sold my car, uh, got a visa. Uh, and I was actually back out probably four months later and I moved to Oklahoma. And you were 26, is that right? I was 24 20. when I accepted the scholarship, yeah. So what was it like once you finally got there and started living, But you know? that lifestyle that you had gotten a sliver of was it like a confirmation of yeah this is this yeah, is 100% it? yeah 100% it was probably harder work than i thought it was going to be because to be an athlete and to be a college athlete you know it's a lifestyle like it's you got to watch what you eat you got to try and go to bed at the right times you got to balance that um college lifestyle and class with you know getting enough rest, training really hard. Um, so that was probably harder than, than I expected that to be. Yeah, so that was definitely an adjustment. Um, but it was for sure the best decision I ever made. Um, I feel like in Liverpool at the time, I was earning good money. Um, but I was probably living in a lifestyle that wasn't making me happy. And at times, you know, I felt depressed. I um, probably partying too much. Um, having too much of a focus on materialistic things like cars, clothes, the way I presented myself. It was <clears throat> a bit of a rat race in, uh, in Liverpool. Kind of reminds me of Los Angeles in, 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 in all honesty. So, you know, I wasn't living a lifestyle that I was proud of. Um, and coming to the States kind of gave me a reset. Um, and I was able to decide to be the, the human I wanted to be and leave maybe some of my um, bad habits behind. So it's kind of like a fresh start. 100%. That's cool. Um, Did you always have coaching in mind for the future? So I think when you, so no, I didn't. And I think when I was in England, 
um, the battle for me was trying to <clears throat> keep the playing career going. That was kind of the focus when it came to football. Um, but when I came to America and when I first got that glimpse over that one summer when I came to visit and I could see these normal people who were making a really good career out of coaching the game, I thought, I don't know how, but I definitely think I can do that. Um, I definitely think I've got the brain capacity to figure out how to be good at this <clears throat> because I love the game. I love playing it. I love competing. Um, and I think I could do it without really understanding anything about it. I just saw, number one, that people were making a good lifestyle from it. And number two, I felt like I could do it. Um, so that was it, really. Uh, but it was a part of the decision. <clears throat> coming to the US was, uh, I think I can make football my life uh, for the rest of my life, both as a player and then hopefully taper into, into being a coach. So um, 100% that was the goal um, when I made the decision to come out here. Cool. So did you start early on taking coaching classes or coaching, getting coaching certificates while you're playing in college or...? Yeah, so the literally the first meeting I had with with Jimmy Hampton, who was the head coach at the university, it was I want to coach. Um, how do I coach? Do you know anyone who'll let me coach? And he explained, well, look, you're on a student visa, you shouldn't be, you can't get paid for anything. Um, but I know some people, and he was a legend that he coached at the local high school. Um, so he kind of got me lined up with a fella called Steve Scott, who was the head coach of the boys Chickasha High School program and a teacher there. So I just became a volunteer lay coach. And that probably happened within 10 days of moving to the US. Um, a lot of me classmates and college players were like, how did you get that this early? And I'm guessing I just had it in me to go and ask uh, and tell them I'd do it for free. And in what money? I just wanted to be a part of it. Um, Who's going to so, say no to that, right? Yeah, well, it's free, and I coach some um, like almost U four like Chickasha butterflies or something they were called. Like a, just a complete little tiny rec team that was the director of housing at USAO. Her son um, had a team, and they were looking for a coach for free, obviously, in the local Chickasha community. So I also started doing that. Um, and that's just kind of how it all started, really. And it was just, you know, volunteering as much as I could to do as much as I could to just get comfortable with, you know, being a voice to athletes and asking them to do what I needed them to do. A lot of people want that immediate gratification of, you know, you obviously were able to get that long big picture in mind and mm -hmm. not care about getting paid right now and knowing that, you know, planting seeds for the future. Yeah, 100%. Well, I just knew that, like, I could tell by Jimmy Hampton and, and his staff, they knew way more about coaching the game than I did. Like, I could just tell within the first few weeks, like, they actually know how to coach, how to think about the game, how to plan training sessions. I didn't have a clue. I just knew that I was hungry and probably intelligent enough to pick it up. Um, so for me, it was you know, this is going to be fun and I'm going to play and I'm going to get another degree and I'm going to have the best four years of my life. But I know that that's going to end, um, especially with me starting late. You know, I'm going to graduate almost 30. Um, my legs are probably going to be past the best at that age. So it was always about how do I make sure that I 
stay in the United States and be a coach for a long time. That was always kind of the driver. Um, so, yeah. What was your – let's start at, back at Chickasha. As a player, what was your favorite moment in soccer there in those four years of college? So this is such a – so it's actually got nothing to do with soccer. Um, my favorite moments ever when I look back at my career was – First year, we got to the national tournaments and we were training in Orange Beach, Alabama um, in the final 32. Um, or maybe we just won the final 32. Maybe it was the Sweet 16 in Orange Beach, Alabama. Um, and one of my teammates, his mum, he'd found out uh, back in Scotland had um, cancer uh, and it was quite sudden. Um, and it was a bit of a blow to him you know, obviously to the family. Um, and I knew that, you know, he was struggling with that. Um, and we didn't know and we're out there training. Um, and as we leave the training pitch, a car pulls up and his dad gets out and his mum gets out and she's got like a, a head scarf on, obviously because she'd been having a lot of treatments. Um, and just seeing him and the team and the way it just, it was just such an emotional moment where like everything was about training and winning and this and this and this. And just being a part of that moment with him and his family and the team and the tears and like the goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps As random right as now. that may sound, it was the, probably the one moment where I look back and go like, wow, like, that was just just to see a teammate feel that way. Uh, and then we go out the next day. We play in the national tournament. His mum's in the stand. Uh, he, he scores. And he scores a goal. Um, and it was just an, just an unbelievable 24 hours. And, you know, thank God she's fully recovered and healthy and safe and, and everything. But um, that is the one moment, for whatever reason, that really, you know, reaches out into my heart when I think about... Uh, being a player at USAL. I know soccer specifically, but also other sports. Um, but I want to brag on soccer. I think that's one of the most magical things about soccer is you do become a family with your teammates. Oh, yeah, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's such a team game. Like, obviously, basketball's a team game, but there's, you know, there's five players and you've only got four players on the bench. And, and like American football, it's almost you've got the offensive team and the defensive team. And like soccer's just like there's 11 players all working together for 90 minutes. Like it's a long time. It's a long time to be on the field and everyone working together for the same objective. Um, it's just definitely a sport that, you know, brings people together and, and gets people on the same page. Cool. And now as a coach, what's been your favorite moment as a coach so far? Oh, wow. Uh, gosh, there's been a lot. There's been a lot of moments. Um, um, I think mm, the first win at Rogers State as a head coach was pretty big for me. Uh, obviously, as you know, the program I took over was 1-17 or something like that the year before. Um, and it was our first game, um, and you know, 
there probably wasn't a thousand people in there, but it felt like there was like, it was like the place was packed. And I think they were there because there was a sense of excitement that maybe we could, you know, change the tide of this team. Um, and we're playing Missouri Southern at home. And the year before, Missouri Southern had beaten Roger State 6-0 at Missouri Southern. So it looked like it was going to be a tough opening game and a baptism of fire. Um, and we're down 1-0 with about 10 minutes to go. And, um, you know, we're, we're in the game, which is being 1-0 is probably a step in the right direction from 6-0. And then bang, bang, we get two goals and we get them late. Um, and it was like the roof came off the place. Uh, I just remember just the euphoric joy of, oh my goodness, we did it. Like we, we didn't just improve on the result last year against Missouri Southern. Like we just flipped the script big and we did it quick. Um, so looking back on that moment, I had a lot of family in the stadium. My, all my club teams were there. The whole Roger State community was there. So that was probably a moment where it was the first game as a head coach in my life. And I look back with just joy and to see the joy in the players that they'd been through some hard times. Like there's been some players there that, you know, had hardly won a game in three years. And um, so to do it on day one was a really, really good memory for me. Speaking of hard times, what has been one of the worst things that happened to you personally that ended up being one of the best things that happened to you? I don't know. I think, I definitely think that, as I touched on before, I remember a time back home in Liverpool where, like, as I say, I was just a partier. I was spending money on booze, on, you know, fancy clothes, fancy cars, kind of whatever I felt was important you know, at the time really wasn't. And it just got me into a really dark, dark place. I remember sitting on my couch at home and the electricity went out where clearly I hadn't kept an eye on paying bills or doing anything. Um, and probably a lot of people looked at me and felt that I had everything going for me. I had lots of friends. I was popular. I was decent at, at sports. I had a great job. I had money. I had the car. I had my own place at a young age. Um, and I just, I just wasn't on a good path. I just wasn't on a, on a, on a good path of life. Uh, kind of shut my family off, shut everything out. And, you know, it was a dark, dark place. And I was, you know, I was in, I was in, I was in the lowest of the low. Um, and um, I wouldn't really tell anyone. I would just keep getting on with it and waking up every day, going to work and then going on that same cycle again of drinking and partying and, um, and then I think the lights going out at my apartment and basically sitting there in darkness, like it was just such a low, low moment. Um, and I remember calling a friend, uh, Frankie, um, and he could tell I was disturbed and I was really upset. And I just reached out to him and told him how I felt. And, and he was great, bit of tough love. You know, you've got to get your, your shit together. Um, you got to sort this out, but he come around. I remember him lending me some money. We got me electricity switch back on, kind of sat there and, and had a chat with me. And um, I just remember that time just being so tough. And um, 
the way he and, and Frankie as a friend is a pretty tough person. Um, no one sees him as a soft kind of loving person. They see him as this real tough guy. Um, and the tough guy was the guy that probably pulled me out of my darkest moments where I just felt like I was useless. Um, so I would say I've used that to try and be as given and as loving as I can be now as a human because I've been there and I've been in a really horrible place and someone helped me get out of it. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say there was like a switch where I look back and it changed me forever. It didn't change me forever, but he helped me get back on my feet. He helped me, you know, commit to living a better life and making better decisions and ultimately taught me how, you know, being there for people when they need you uh, and, and being there to put an arm around someone or giving them whatever they need in times of darkness. And um, it was a real strong moment in my life where, um, you know, I, I have to thank him, I think. You know, he really, I felt like he saved me when I needed him. Well, I have definitely seen the results of that just by how much you care about the players when you're at Roger State. Um, so I, I definitely see the, you know, that aspect of it. And like you said, he did it to me. So now it's like my mission in life to do that, to be there for someone else. And the other thing about that too, that is very important, that is so hard for us to do, especially men, is to ask for help, to call that friend. Yeah, no, agreed. Um, I completely agree. It's uh, it's hard, um, but I'm glad I did it. And um, and it's uh, it's funny. It's funny how you know we do we do need help. We do have to talk more, uh, especially in a world right now with social media and it's keeping up with the Joneses. And you know, it's there's a lot of pressure on on people to live a certain way through, you know, the eyes of, you know, whatever social media says we should be. Um, and there's a lot of people getting in situations that I got in. There's no doubt about it. Um, so, so you're right. Just, just being there for people and actually caring about them rather than just being their coach or their teacher or their mentor or their friend, you know, finding out about the person and caring about them's, you know, going to help you and, and, and help them. And I think you saw how doing that can actually make a big difference in someone's life with your situation. And so I think that probably makes you do that even more. I would guess. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. No, it's, um, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, they like me, they like to play for me. Um, you know, that I'm, you know, I'll keep them cheered up even when I'm going to ask a lot of them. Um, but a lot of that comes just through the relationship and growing the relationship with people and making them feel safe that you actually care about them. And yeah, I'm going to drop you and I'm not going to play you for two weeks because I don't think you deserve to play. But it doesn't mean that I don't love you and care for you. Um, and I'm going to challenge you to be a better player and a better human and get better grades. And you're going to feel like I'm, I'm on you, which is fine. But I'm doing that because I really care about you um, and I care about, you know, you developing into a great soccer player and, and an even better human being. And I think when you do take the time to actually care about someone and figure them out, it helps you do what I'm saying and do your job properly. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. How do you help your players who have confidence issues? 
I'm a very like um, you know people actually make fun of me for it. You know you you so when you're coaching, um, they almost train you on courses to have like a freeze moment and freeze a moment when there's been a failure or a breakdown. Get in, discuss the breakdown, and give solutions and try and navigate solutions with the players as to prevent that breakdown from happening. And I agree with that as a part of coaching, but I'm definitely like a positive reinforcement coach. So rather than stop it every time to correct someone or navigate solutions with them, I'm a coach that they'll hear me praise them for doing something right. So so letting them know when things are good, letting them know when they're, when they're doing what I want them to do, rather than just trying to improve people by telling them that was wrong, let's try and do X, Y, and Z. So I think I'm a coach that likes to praise and give positive reinforcements. Um, and then I think confidence issues is, is again, it's, it's, it's sitting down and, and explaining to players that, yes, you may neglect certain areas of your game or whatever and um, but you do have special key qualities and I think as coaches a lot of the times we're always trying to repair or fix what people are crap at or no good at and we forget to enhance their secret weapon or what they're absolutely brilliant at because at the end of the day David Beckham was David Beckham because of his right foot and his and his delivery of free kicks and his crossing um, to not work on that would be stupid because that's a secret weapon. Um, so for me, I like to, yes, improve people's failures, but I definitely invest a lot of time in what they're really special at and really make that thing even more special. Um, and I think that is a good way to make people feel good about themselves and make them feel like they do have some key qualities to bring to a team or their life or, or a locker room or whatever. It's interesting. I just did a little workshop with some of Larkin's kids. Uh, he's got some club kids about 16 years old. And one of the things I told them about was to write down three of their strengths, three things that they are good at or their parents or coaches have said they're good at. So that kind of reinforced, makes me feel better knowing that that technique actually does work. So it's good to hear. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Um, what about helping a player who's having trouble staying focused and in the moment? So I think that, um, like that is, it's a great question, it's, it, but it can be a very, very broad question. Uh, and there can be a lot of reasons as to why someone's not focused or not in the moment. And if someone doesn't love what they do, then it's, why would you focus on it? Because it's not something you, you love or that you're really into. Um, some people may have issues off the field where they've got something else going on that's maybe taking their focus away from something that we want them to focus on. So I think there's a lot of reasons as, as to the why, why people would lose focus. And I think for me, it's bringing in that individual and actually sitting down and having a conversation with them. I'm figuring out what's going on. I know early at Roger the States, one of the things I, I would start to do, and I did it early, was some kind of individual development plans with the players. Um, and basically, we wanted to make them better at something that they wanted to be better at. And it didn't have to be soccer-related. I wanted to make sure that somebody felt better at something 
Um, and at the end of the day, if it means that you're stressed out, that you stink at biology, and that is making you struggle in the soccer environment, then let's fix biology. It might not be the soccer issue or anything to do with soccer that's the problem. Um, I know I had a player who was new to Claremore and she was struggling with not having friends or not having a hobby. So her individual development plan had nothing to do with football. We got her into a photography uh, kind of group on campus because that was something that she was passionate about. Uh, and ultimately it made the, it made the human happier um, and, you know, more balanced. Um, and I just truly believe if you can do that, then you're probably going to improve the soccer player as well because you're helping them in another area. So, so yeah. I love that. I love that. Do you do similar things with your pro coach, pro team now? Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, I think especially with COVID right now, um, <clears throat> I've um, basically, um, with me being new to this team in Chicago, it's been a good opportunity for me to um, get to know the players, get to understand the players, what makes them tick. Um, and we've done very similar things where I created kind of a statistical report. Um, but I tweaked the report for every player individually because some statistics like let's say how many times do you win the ball back in the opponent's box well for a goalkeeper that's not a smart stat because when are they ever going to go in the goalkeeper's box so basically i built out all these statistical booklets for each player um, based on their position um, and it had their last three years of stats and then i also put some players in in the league to play in their position and then basically put a back page on the booklet that said I want three strengths and I want three things that you want to be better at. And then at the bottom, any questions for coaches. So basically I'm not going to tell you what to look at. I want you to look at your own stats, self-reflect on what I'm giving you. <clears throat> and then you tell me what you want to be better at based on the stats. And then we'll just go from there. And some of them were random. Some of them were pretty precision and to the point but again it was just an exercise where you're empowering the athletes to be involved in their own developments and then you come and tell me what you want to be better at you're a, you're, a, you're an adult you're a professional athlete and then i'll help you get there and kind of navigate it with you um so we did that and then i also asked the head coach to give me one thing one big thing on the pitch that he would like each player to be better at individually. Um, so I then went away with video and I would find that moment, um, good, bad, uh, add some graphics to each video, maybe 10 clips. Um, and then again, sent it out to the players. These are the things that we would like you to focus on when COVID is over as an individual, watch the video, then we'll sit on a zoom together and go through it. And then they had the opportunity to give feedback and kind of ask questions and, and kind of navigate it themselves rather than I'm just telling you this is what I want you to be better at and this is how you do it. You know, really going through it with them and just being a part of their journey on, on, on that. So, so yeah, I suppose it's very similar. Um, I do think there's a difference in professional to kind of college where, you know, I, 
uh, we got that player set up with a photography class. I think here, you know, a lot of these players have got families, they've got kids. Um, I do feel like it's a little bit less developing the human than it what it is in college. Here, it's very much geared towards developing the athlete and developing the soccer player um, with a little bit of human element to it. But I definitely feel it's... Because they're just older? I think, well, yeah, some of them have, you know, they've got a mortgage, they've got a, they've got a husband or a wife, they've got a family. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, you, you're not developing them to be better in their community. Um, hopefully they've already discovered that. Uh, but, <clears throat> you know, me, I'll still always um, ensure that, you know, I had a, we had a meeting yesterday and, and a player was late to the meeting online and um, I got a text from the player and I text the player back. Um, you know, this isn't acceptable. Um, it's something you've got to stay on. Um, you know, I'm here if you need anything. Done. Nipped it in the bud. Done. So I guess that was me, you know, still trying to mould a young athlete into being a good human and a good professional. Um, so it does go on. It's probably just not quite as much as, uh, as it is in the youth game and the college game. <clears throat> Is that what you would say is the biggest difference total, like overall? Between uh, that, that is a big difference. Um, I'd say um, in, in the college, I think in the youth game, it's about developing the human and developing the individual as a soccer player. Like for me, it doesn't, I, it's all about developing the individual. Um, I think in college, yes, it's about winning, but you can't win if you get a 1.0 GPA and all your kids are partying every weekend. That's to, in college, that isn't winning. Uh, winning is having a balanced program where you are helping youngsters navigate life and becoming adults and being ready for the next stage of their life while getting good grades and representing something that's bigger than them, which is the university and the program. Um, so I think that is definitely, you know, a part of it, whereas in the professional side, it's you as a coach may think that your philosophy is is a, is teaching these people to be better humans. That's okay, that's your philosophy. But ultimately, you're not going to get judged on that. You're going to get judged judged on results. Um, so everyone's a little bit different. You could have the best humans in the world that give back and work for charities and raise kids, and they just do so well. And if you go zero and ten, you're fired. Um, so I still believe it's important uh, to me, but there's that little bit of difference where you know you've you've got to win. Gotcha. There's that there's that pressure of results. It's always there. Yeah, but I actually enjoy it. I think when you grow up, um, you know, and you want to be a coach, you want to coach in the games that are the biggest games in the world. Well. If you want to be in that game, in the biggest game in the world, then you better be prepared to be fired if you don't win. Like, it's just, it's a part of the industry that we're in. <clears throat> um, and such would have never been fired. Um, so I think the higher you get up the ladder, the more chances you've got of that happening. Um, so, so no, I don't fear it. I actually quite like it because it puts a responsibility on you to do your job to the best of your ability and, and you know, really focus on the, the minor details to get things right when it comes to game day. So I don't mind the accountability of that. Awesome, awesome. 
um, what was the, the, when you went from college to your first pro team in Utah, mm -hmm. how did you make that transition? How did you like apply for that? Did they scout you? Like, So yeah, I, uh, the head coach, Laura Harvey, who's, you know, arguably one of the best coaches in the world, uh, in the women's game. Um, me and Laura were on a license together, a coaching license, a, a national B license in Casa Grande, Arizona. Um, and I knew who she was because I'd seen it on like Britain's version of ESPN is Sky Sports News. Um, because she was the head coach of Arsenal women, she'd won, you know, the Premier League, the FA Cup, she'd been in the Champions League with Arsenal. So I knew she was. <clears throat> and we got quite close on the course where she, um, you know, um, I think she may have thought I was a good coach. She thought I was a decent human. Uh, we got along really well. And at the time, she was the head coach of Seattle Reign, <clears throat> which is in the National Women's Soccer League. Uh, and she offered me a position to go up there. Uh, so I must have done something right in them 10 days. And she was a candidate too. Um, she's got all of her UEFA licenses, but <clears throat> she wanted to do some of the US soccer ones. So it didn't quite work out. I was actually a volunteer coach at Roger State for Larkin at the time. I actually drove to Seattle thinking we were going to get it going. And for one reason or another, it just didn't quite work. Um, so I drove all the way back to Oklahoma. Thankfully, my wife didn't quit her job yet. Um, and Larkin took me back, which was great. Um, so, so we kept in contact over the time. And I think through social media and live streaming of games, she was able to watch me kind of do well and get into the women's game and have success. Um, and I was able to keep in contact with her and watch her games over, over the internet and on live TV. And we just kind of stayed in contact over two or three years. And um, she ended up taking the job in Utah um, and she gave me a call. So there was no job interview. It was, do you want to do this? Um, I obviously spoke to my wife. She backed us, thankfully. Um, and there was no real negotiation. It was, this is it. Let's go give it a go. Um, so it was as simple as that, really. So just being you and uh, you doing, yeah. that, doing networking. Yeah, and I'll be honest with you. I go on courses and I go to like the National Coaching Convention and I see people who are very deliberate in kind of networking and I can see it. I can feel it when people want to network with me. They don't really care about me. They don't really, they just want me to remember who they are. They know who I am. I'm not really into that. Um, I have a bubbly personality and people think I'm probably easier to, kind of connect with but I'm not someone who's comfortable with just going over and talking to someone I'm not someone who just go out with a certain group of coaches for a beer I'm just not that way inclined I am actually quite reserved and um, so so yes it was networking but it was a natural networking it wasn't forced there was no you know going after each other it was just it just happened um and, and I'll be honest with you, she'd only seen me coach for 10 days on the, on the course. Um, she'd seen my success and watched a couple of Roger State games. Um, but I truly believe she called me because of the human rather than the coach. That's truly what I believe. I think I've heard her quote before. She feels like she could trust me. She feels like if a bus was going to come down the street, I'd push her out the way and take one for her. Um, so I think that was where actually her interest came from was me as a human, um, which, you know, is important.
True, true. Was that the same convention that you met Tony Miola? I saw you have a picture with him. So no, so that was that I met Laura on the B license and Tony Miola I was with on my A license. And that was in Raleigh, North Carolina. What was it like? What was he like meeting him? It was great, hilarious, um, you know, very East Coast, um, got the accents kind of very bubbly, very loud, tons of stories. Um, obviously, you know, a US legend in the game. Um, and I, I tried to convince him to let me take a penalty against them. Um, and he said, no, uh, the last penalty that was ever against them was Pele and he saved it. So he said, uh, he'll never let anyone take a penalty on him again. So, so yeah, but no, he was great. And as I say, it's uh, nice to meet some people like that on these courses that, you know, you get to have maybe a fun time with for a little bit. Cool. I'm trying to get him on too. Um, how do you go about developing leaders in your team? Good question. Good question. So I think that, <clears throat> I think that for to ask people to lead, you have to help the team come up with standards because I think without standards, then there's nothing for them to lead from. There's nothing for them to take a lead on. So I've been involved in certain programs where, you know, there are no standards. There are no, this is what's expected. This is what we think um, is required. Um, so personally for me, without standards, leadership to me is dead. Um, so I think it was a tip that I got on a coaching course. What I did at Roger State was we would sit the team down and discuss some topics from on the field classroom lifestyle and basically let the group be empowered in making the decisions on what's acceptable what are we going to say is acceptable and i think when you do that there's no trick to it but if you say to people what's acceptable about class attendance very rarely does a player pipe up and say 50 percent of class is good like it just doesn't happen um, people aren't going to say that. Um, so one thing that I'd like to do is open the floor up, both at Roger State and in professional environments, and say, let's create our kind of our standards together, who we want to be together from, you know, from how we sleep, how we eat, how we train, how we turn up every day, how we go to class, community service, whatever it is, and just empower the group to build this kind of, standards together because I feel like when it's a choice and it's a decision made by everyone we're probably a little bit more inclined to actually do it um, and I hear some programs they have this huge book and it's you can't do this you can't do that you can't do that and you have to sign it in pre-season I just don't think I've ever really reacted well to someone basically the only things they tell me are things that I can't do like you can't do this. You know what young people are like. People are going to rebel. So, so I think empowering the group, staff included, players included, to come up with who we want to be on and off the field, agreeing on it as a group and having an open forum. Um, and then once the standards are in place, I think that's a really good opportunity then for players to lead the culture 
and lead the standards because they've actually got a, a framework to go from. Um, and when everyone in that room agrees that they came up with this, I just think it's easier for everyone else to have the confidence to actually go and lead rather than it being coach driven. It's a little bit more player driven. Um, more of a so, democracy than a dictatorship. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I would say that's, that's the case. And, and for me, I think it works. I think uh, the amount of stuff that Lexi Ellingson um, would, would deal with um, and Daisy Cardona would deal with that we now talk about that I had no clue about. I had no clue. And they were seeing situations and were going and handling it um, as leaders um, because they were empowered to lead uh, and they were given standards which allowed them to lead. Um, so now when I see them and, you know, I, I love all players who've played for me, especially players like them. We stay in contact a lot and, you know, I've met them for coffees and they've come to Utah and, and whatnot and, just speaking to them and hearing the stories that have gone on behind the scenes where, you know, maybe they've shut a party down. Maybe they've told the player to delete something off social media because they've seen that it doesn't match what we agreed was, was what we wanted to be. Um, and it never gets to the AD. It never gets to Dawn. It never gets to me. It didn't get to Kelsey because they dealt with it themselves. Um, you know, for me, that's how you, that's how you create leaders. And culture, it's leaders in culture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, goal setting. How do you set goals for yourself? Do you write them down? Do you just keep them in the back of your head? Tell me how you implement goal setting for yourself and for your team. Both. Yeah, I think I think for the team we kind of touched on that with kind of the individual plans and I think again when you have these meetings as a team you just can come up with what your goals are as a team and again not necessarily be the coach that designs it but the players that design it too because uh, I think when you open the floor to a team very rarely do they say let's come bottom or you know so I think uh, so I think you know empowering the team on, on picking team goals is important and then personally you know, for me, my goal is the highest goal, which is to coach the US women's national team uh, or the England national team. Um, and I think when you set a goal that is the ultimate, then pretty hard to catch. It's pretty hard to get there. Um, so you don't really need to reassess your goal. You just keep going and going and going until you get there. Um, now, obviously, it doesn't just happen overnight. You've probably got to have a lot of small goals that you almost like a ladder to get there. Um, and I think coaching education is is one again. It's pretty easy. You don't have to plan it a whole lot because you go from F to A in in uh, in the US and you do the same in Europe. Um so I've finished the US ones now and now it's time to get through the European ones. Um, um I was scheduled to be in Scotland next month for the UEFA B license. Um they're actually gonna look at doing it online through workshops and tutorials, which is wonderful for me. Um, so the educational piece is pretty easy again because the path is already in front of you. You've just got to keep hitting the checkpoints and keep getting through them. Um, that blueprint's it, already there. It's already there, yeah. You don't even have to set them. You just have to keep chasing them because they're already there. Um, and then I think personally, it's just um, a lot of self-reflection. 
um, because, you know, I may think today that I'm really good at the, um, you know, the sports performance side of soccer, let's say, as an example. Well, in two years' time, I need to look back and actually understand with the education that I've got and the experience that I've got, am I right in actually, do I know it all in sports performance? Have I done enough? Do I understand the new ways and the new models? So I think it's just constant self-reflection within, both as a human and as, as a professional, on what areas your gut is telling you you need to improve on and maybe keep working on as we said before, the big rocks that I know that I'm good at, keep enhancing that and stay ahead on, on, on them areas. So so I think for me right now, it's I've got that goal and where I want to get to. Um, and then it's just chipping away every day, every season, every month, and just keep improving. And then my last question I'd like to end with is, if you could go back and tell your 24-year-old self one thing that would help you in your coaching career, what would it be? Oh, that's a good question, that is. Okay, so I think the one thing I would, this is what it would be. It would be to, <clears throat> so when you're a young coach, it's difficult because you have to understand the game and training while coaching it at the same time. So it can become about the coach and about my understanding of a situation or about my understanding of how we're going to win this game or about my understanding of how this training session should go. But as a coach, it's all about the player and the players. Um, and I think that would be the one tip I would give myself. Yes, you have to focus on you and you have to keep challenging how you see the game and develop yourself. But don't forget, it's all about the player. That's your job. Um, and I, I think an example I'm going to give you here in Utah, uh, it's super tactical professional soccer. It's lots of video, lots of, you know, you know, teams play this way and they're so good that they play this way a lot and all the time. And I remember giving two defenders who, Becky Sauerbrunn, who's, I think, the best defender in world football, and then Rachel Corsi, the captain of Scotland and was at a World Cup last year. I gave them information on how I wanted them to play out of the back. And at half time, they did the complete opposite to what I felt I told them. Well, I ended up having to self-reflect on what had gone down here. Why was it that they didn't do what I asked them to do? Um, and when I spoke to them, they said, I never really got that from you. I didn't pick up on that information when I felt like that was the only information that I gave them. And I think what it was a bit of an aha moment for me was I had almost felt that I'd seen something in a game that could help us win. And I was so proud that I seen it. I felt like it was about me. And I was presenting because I'd seen something. And in that moment, I realized that 
I needed, my job was to make them understand it, not make me understand it. So I may sit at home like, oh, I'm so good. I seen something. And that's probably how I went about it, which is fine because we should be proud of ourselves when we start to see the game in a more complex way. Um, but that was the moment where I've gone, okay, it's not just seeing the game. You've got to teach it to the player. You've got to make sure they understand what you're talking about or there's no point in me being good at seeing it if you can't get it through to your players. So that would be my advice to my 24-year-old self ensure that the player understands and it's not just you the coach that understands because the coach doesn't play the game the players do that's beautiful almost like poetry <laughs> i'm not sure <laughs> scotty we're gonna wrap up here thank you so much for being on the podcast uh it's been an honor to talk to you again uh we miss you at roger state um but we wish you the best I miss you guys too. Thanks for having me on, Brandon. I really appreciate you. Say hello to your dad for me. Will do. Will do. All right, mate. See ya. He's been excited to uh, hear this podcast. So. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Well, I'll speak to you soon, mate. Be safe. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes.